0: to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 49, A Wasted Golden Age. First of all, I've got three Patreon supporters to thank, Joshua Goodrich, Rosa for increasing her pledge, and Todor Penef. Thanks so much to all three of you, really appreciate it. So straight into the story. Now last time, the Savoyard Crusade gave the Ottomans a poke, and the Bulgarians a bloody nose, with significant losses in trade and taxes, resulting from being stripped of much of their Black Sea ports. Overall... Attempts to unify the Balkans from within to resist the Ottomans, as well as those by Catholic Europe to do the same from without, have been total failures. Short-term priorities reign all around, as everyone jockeys for power on a sinking ship. But hope isn't lost. The Balkan states, Bulgaria, Serbia, and Byzantium, all have fight left in them. The question is whether it will be used to fight each other, or the Ottomans. After his losses in the crusade, Ivan Alexander wasn't really fixated on getting those ports back, or fighting the Ottomans, for that matter. No, his focus seemed squarely on Vidin and his captured son, so he quickly assembled a coalition to retake the territory from the Hungarians, drawing on the forces of Dolbrža, whatever they must have had left over after being devastated by the Savoyard Crusade a year earlier, and Vladislav of Wallachia. Who you'll remember is an occasional Hungarian vassal, but one who desperately wants independence. In 1368, their united armies invaded and laid siege to Viden. In retaliation, King Louis of Hungary marched an army in their direction, as well as ordering one of his vassals in Transylvania to invade Wallachia from the north. Now that army was ambushed by Wallachians as they made their way through the mountains and were slaughtered along with their commander. But, in spite of this failure, Louis moved into Wallachia from the west and successfully subdued the country. But while things in Wallachia were going badly, a popular uprising in Vidin, sparked in part by a hatred of the Hungarians and their attempts to convert the population to Catholicism, made it clear to Louis that he couldn't hold on to the territory. So. Louis agreed to allow Ivan Stratimir to return to his throne in Wieden. Ah, oh, but there was a catch. Remember that Stratzimir had converted to Catholicism himself. As a part of the deal of his release, he actually agreed to become a Hungarian vassal in an effort to further his goal of asserting independence from his father, the one who had disinherited him, and left his mother for another woman. Now we're kind of assuming a little bit about his motivations here. But it seems, yeah, his, his hatred to his father as well as his conversion probably played a role in his decision to do this. And so, in a way, the entire war, the whole affair was a farce, a disastrous waste of time and resources. The only result for Bulgaria was that Hungary made Wallachia a vassal state once again, and Viden, instead of being ruled by Hungary directly, was now ruled as a vassal but now was probably more secure as a vassal because it had a Bulgarian royal on the throne running it on behalf of Hungary, sort of acting as a in-between so the population wouldn't get quite as angry at the Hungarians for trying to convert them. And all the while, the Ottomans are still expanding their control, taking more cities like Boruja, which is modern Stara Zagora. Still, Ivan Alexander had not forgotten about them. In 1370, He was attempting to pull together an anti-Ottoman alliance with Bulgaria and some Serbian forces. However, while those preparations were underway in 1371, both Ivan Alexander and the Serbian Tsar Stefan Uros V died. The Serbian leader left the world with no children. The Bulgarian, seven still alive out of the nine children he had had over his life with two women. Ivan Alexander had ruled for an incredible 40 years, while Urosh had ruled for just nine and had died still a relatively young man. But both rulers had allowed their states to fracture during their reigns. Both rulers had allowed regions to move away from the core without really seeming to do much to stop them. But worst of all, both Tsars were utterly ineffectual against the Ottomans. Lastly, Uroš's passing marked the end of the Nemanjic dynasty, and with it the Serbian Empire, which, you'll remember, had only appeared fairly recently. You see, Uroš had had died not only without children, but without appointing an heir. And the result was that the title, Tsar of the Serbs and the Greeks, really died with him unsurprisingly from the ashes those independent magnates which had been rising in power throughout his nine years on the throne all rose up and claimed their little piece of the empire none of them with the ability or the authority to try to claim the crown itself and to try to kind of rebuild the empire themselves so they took what they could thus an intense fragmentation occurred you can find a map of this on the website now before we move on, I want to take some time to talk about other things that were happening during the four decades of Ivan Alexander's rule. Now, I know many listeners over time have mentioned to me that they really want more cultural history, and I'm completely with you on that. But until now, there's been almost no sources of information on Bulgarian culture and everyday life. But that's now kind of beginning to change, we're getting more and more uh, as time goes on. So. As we progress, I'm going to try to do little retrospectives and weave in bits of cultural history when I can. And now is one of those times. So if you remember all the way back to the reign of Simeon the Great at the end of the 9th century until the beginning of the 10th century, this was a period that was seen as kind of the first golden age of Bulgarian culture. It was just after the conversion to Christianity when monasteries and churches were being built the cyrillic alphabet was being developed and overall the country was striving to turn itself into a respected european medieval state instead of being viewed as yet another group of barbarians which was the way in which bulgaria was starting to well, was originally kind of viewed by the byzantines and yeah it was also this transformation under the reign of simeon was a way of bulgaria saying we are here to stay we're not going to be like the avars and the Khazars and uh uh, so many you know say the huns all these other kind of nomadic peoples who came and went you've heard me talk about this in the past well the reign of ivan alexander is widely seen as kind of the second period of flourishing of bulgarian culture that second cultural golden era now the first question about this is obvious why? Why now? In short, it was stability and some level of prosperity. Now, you're probably wondering, wait, 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 what stability, what prosperity? I mean, Ivan Alexander's reign had plenty of wars and had raids by the Ottomans. Yes and no. So first, bear in mind that the wars generally occurred on the peripheries of the Bulgarian state. Turnival was never really threatened during the reign of Ivan Alexander. Also, while there has been plenty of conflict, it's been stretched out over 40 years, so you'll notice the pacing can be difficult to keep track with with the last few episodes, but the years have been passing fairly quickly. It hasn't been like, let's say, the reign of uh, Tsar Samuil, where it's just war every single year continuously and raiding, and it, it gets a little bit more intense there. So in spite of what may have seemed to be the case, trade actually really flourished, during Ivan Alexander's reign. I mean, I mentioned last time that the Black Sea ports were doing very good trade with Venice and Constantinople. So some level of trade and stability did help. But what really made the difference was Ivan Alexander himself. He was a very serious and devoted patron of churches and monasteries. Evidence of this can be found throughout Bulgaria today. There are donor portraits i.e. a portrait of a person who has given significant money to a church or monastery, in the Bachkovo Monastery near Plovdiv, and the Ivanovo Monastery in the Danube Valley. This is one that's carved out of a sheer cliff. Uh, I'll include images of both on the website and, having visited both myself, I can say they are definitely two of the most interesting religious sites in the country after, of course, the Rila Monastery. So definitely worth a visit. But Ivan Alexander went further than just this church and monastery. I called Ivanovo Monastery, as my mistake, it's a church. But Ivan Alexander also began construction of the Dragolevsky Monastery, which is at the foot of Mount Vitusha, just outside of Sofia. If you go to hike Mount Vitusha uh, or ski there, there's a good chance you go to the Dragolevsky ski lift, which is just after that monastery. It's worth to- stopping off and seeing. He also uh, kind of began the construction of the Kilifarovo Monastery in central Bulgaria, as well as the Nicholas Monastery in Pernik near Sofia. Additionally, he helped to fund the reconstruction of two monasteries in Nesebar of the Black Sea coast. And these are the only projects about which we have direct evidence that Ivan Alexander was involved. It's entirely possible that he was funding even more churches and projects that we have, well, that have been lost to time. So, All these constructions and reconstructions, they went right along with the strengthening of the Bulgarian Orthodox Church over the course of Ivan Alexander's reign. Twice during his four decades in power, in 1350 and 1359, church councils were convened, which condemned Jews, Bogomils, Adamites, and Judaizers, the latter three being Christian sects which which continued to flourish in Bulgaria. Remember, well, Remember in the past we've talked about how and why a lot of these Christian sects, in particular the Boglemils, did so well in Bulgaria. Also remember that Ivan Alexander's second wife had converted from Judaism, and thus became a zealous Orthodox Christian, who actually, sadly and ironically, persecuted the Jewish residents of Ternovol and pressured them to convert. So this is all really a continuation of the strong tradition of sectarianism, And what the central authorities of the church would call heresy in Bulgarian orthodoxy, a tradition that, as I've also mentioned, was always really a thorn in the sides of the elites, as it inhibited their ability to control and centralize the state through the church. Because remember, sects like the Bulgamils didn't really believe in paying taxes or serving in the military. Although the persecution of these religious groups was obviously brutal, we can un- understand the desire to unite the country religiously, as it was so divided kind of politically. Also, it's worth mentioning again that during the reign of the Orthodox Church during this period, the Despotate of Dolbuja moved itself to the Patriarch of Constantinople, and obviously there were the attempted conversions in Viden. So while the church was centralizing itself in Turnoval. The peripheries were still moving away. Now, then there was the literature produced during Ivan Alexander's reign. Byzantine chronicles, like the famous Manassas Chronicle, were translated into the middle Bulgarian language at that time. Also, several famous Psalters were created. A Psalter is a book of Psalms, calendars, miniatures, and just various religious texts, which are collected into a single bound manuscript. Now, these were extremely labor-intensive to create, and are set today some of the greatest and most beautiful artifacts of this period. Uh, I'll also include images of those on the website. They're very sort of richly decorated, uh, the style is quite marvelous. Lastly, there was also the Gospels of Ivan Alexander. Now, This was another form of illuminated manuscript, in particular created by a monk named Simeon around 1355 to 1356. It's believed that the Tsar himself commissioned these Gospels for personal use in his chapel. The book contains four Gospels as well as calendars and a rather stunning portrait of the Tsar and his family. Though, to be clear, this is his second wife and the two children from his second family. His first family is entirely omitted, making this image, which of course I'll also include on the website. Another great example of just how Tsar Ivan Alexander really moved away and kind of disinherited his first family when he remarried Sarah, who became Theodora. Historian Scott McKendrick called this work, quote, the most celebrated work of art produced in Bulgaria before it fell to the Turks, in, I cut off the quote there to leave that a little bit of a surprise. But it is a stunning work. Today, like most of the manuscripts I just mentioned, The Gospels of uh, Ivan Alexander is in the British Library in London. I'm actually heading to London soon, and I want to see if there's any way I can maybe see it in person. But if any of you are in London, maybe go see if you can take a look at some of these manuscripts. I'm sure it'll be very interesting to see them in person. So. Overall, the production of these manuscripts shows that the monasteries and literary, literary schools of Bulgaria were funded and flourishing at the time. They had the extra resources to devote to creating these very labor-intensive uh, pieces of work. And, really, it's amazing to consider just how different this period must have been, because what we know is that so many of the greatest works of art of the entire Second Bulgarian Empire seem to be, have been produced during this short period. Oh, and additionally, I should mention, Ivan Alexander also rebuilt the fortress of Tsaravets in the heart of the capital, Velikoturnoval, during his reign. Now, it had been more than a century since major repairs and additions were made, and considering the looming Ottoman threat, this was without a doubt a wise investment. But still, I can't help but see the tragic irony in all of this. Ivan Alexander invested so much in the long-term cultural heritage of Bulgaria while investing so little in bringing the state together and resisting the coming of the Ottomans. In that sense, it was, as the title of this episode suggests, a wasted golden age. A flourishing which would produce incredible works of culture from a society that was about to be overtaken by a foreign power. So ultimately, as much as it pains me to say it, Ivan Alexander spent far too much time concerned with the church, with monasteries, with literature, with changing families midway through life, and not nearly enough time preparing his state for the Ottoman onslaught that was coming. Okay, so that was a nice little recap of the major cultural, religious, and architectural events which occurred during Ivan Alexander's four decades in power, but now it's time to get back to the narrative. When Ivan Alexander died, you'll recall that his only remaining son from his first marriage, Ivan Stratimir, had declared himself Tsar and was running Vidin independently of the power of Tornruval as a Hungarian vassal state. The two sons from his second marriage were both co-rulers with him, Ivan Asen V and Ivan Shishman. Also, if you're curious, he did have one daughter from his first marriage and three from his second marriage, some of whom will come into play later in the story but that's how I got to that total of nine children that I mentioned earlier. Ivan Shishman, of the two boys, was the older one, and so upon his father's death, Ivan Shishman became the new Tsar of Bulgaria. Now, just what happened to his brother, Ivanus V, is a bit unclear. You'll recall, previously, most of the second and third sons had been given things, well, despotates, right? They'd been uh, put in charge of Lovitch or Vidin or something. But we don't really know what happened to Ivanus and the Fifth. There's really no mention of him in the historical sources until his death. But in any case, Ivan Shishman himself was about 20 years old when his father died. So you know, he's not a young man, but he's still in his prime. But immediately upon his ascension to the throne, a crisis ensued. Now, under normal circumstances, the Tsar's older brother, Ivan Stratzimir, obviously would have become the new Tsar. However, Ivan Alexander had, remember under pressure probably from his second wife, um, changed the line to make Ivan Shishman his heir, because Ivan Shishman had been born while his father was Tsar. But when that moment came, Ivan Stratzimir was unwilling to accept that the state would be divided into three independent regions, all still kind of referred to as Bulgaria. So Dobruja, Vidin and the central part of Bulgaria are still in historical sources, sources kind of referred to as Bulgaria, even though those two peripheral states are kind of run by themselves. It's all a bit confusing and the precise political relationship is a bit hard to decipher. Some believe that Stratsimir actually may have even, on this moment, invaded his half-brother's territory and conquered Sofia. Though, again, this is a bit unclear whether this invasion happened. There are two theories, really. One that Stratzimir took Sofia for a year or two before losing it again, or just something else happened. But either way, what we know is that events led to more or less permanent bad relations between Vidin and Turnoval. Though some historians do argue that they may have been closer and cooperated, whatever cooperation happened or didn't happen what we know for sure is that it was not effective so the same year ivan alexander died and ivan shishman took the throne the ottomans made significant gains elsewhere now you'll remember i mentioned that the serbian empire had devolved into a variety of smaller states when uros v died well that same year this fragmentation occurred serbian and greek magnates of the region set aside their squabbles and threw together an army to attack Ottomans. Now, They attempted to get Bulgarian and Byzantine support, but both states were too busy or too distrusting of these Serbian and Greek magnates to be willing to participate in this attack on the Ottomans. So in the short time they had, these Serbian magnates succeeded in mustering a fairly substantial army, tens of thousands strong, estimates range from about 20,000 to 70,000 soldiers. Still, it's worth pointing out that many Serbian magnates did keep their forces at home, concerned over what would happen to the land that they controlled should they leave. So this is another reminder of the difference between a centralized, powerful Serbian empire and a fragmented region. That with this fragmentation, everyone is concerned for themselves and unwilling to devote their full resources because they're concerned with, what if my neighbor invades me while all my soldiers are gone? Still, in spite of these setbacks, The army that was sent out to fight the Ottomans vastly outnumbered them. And the Serbian brothers who led the army knew that. They led their forces with confidence down the Maritza River towards the Ottoman capital of Edirne, which is what the Ottomans called Adrianople, preparing to surprise the Ottomans and take the city. But the Ottoman leader, Lala Shahin, Murad was busy in Anatolia, and so this uh, bey or sort of a uh, leader, Lala, was running things, was a hardened battle commander, and knew exactly what to do in this situation. His scouts had told him that the Serbs were approaching, and he was planning to make the most of his smaller force. Thus, he watched the Serb approach, until they stopped for the night of September 26th, and had a great feast to celebrate what they presumed would be their impending victory. By dawn, many of the men were drunk. The camp was unguarded, and the Ottomans saw their chance. They swept in and attacked the army, mercilessly cutting down Serbian soldiers, as many Serbs began to flee towards the Maritza River. As a result, thousands drowned. Chronicles speak of the river running red with blood. The two great Serbian leaders, the brothers, were killed in battle. Just like that, the whole swath of territory stretching across the Balkans was crushed, leaving the Ottomans open to expand their territory across northern Greece and Macedonia towards the Adriatic Sea. It also left those Serbian magnates who had stayed out of the battle to expand at the expense of those who well, who had participated in the battle. So in a way, the ones who kept their forces at home were right, and they were vindicated. But the result was, as John Fine puts it, Quote, "...hostile to one another and involved in enriching themselves at the expense of their neighbors, the nobles went blind to the ever-increasing seriousness of the Ottoman danger and unwilling to cooperate against it. As they skirmished and fought amongst themselves, further manpower, sorely needed to resist the Turks, was lost." End quote. And so, many historians during and sense have said that on that day, at the Battle of Moritza, Serbia was broken. Within two years, possibly as a result of seeing just how powerful the Ottomans had become and how well and thoroughly they had crushed the Serbs, Byzantine Emperor John V recognized the sovereignty of Sultan Murad and began to pay him tribute. Greatly resenting this, John's son Andronicus joined forces with Murad's son Savcebe, to jointly rebel against their fathers. Thus, the Byzantine Empire was plunged into yet another civil war, but this time with the Ottoman Empire fighting its own civil war right beside it. And that's why I want to leave it this time. With the question of just where this new civil war is leading up in the air. True, the Balkans are undoubtedly in an incredibly weak position with the Serbian Empire gone and with a young man on the throne in Turnoval leading a divided state. But what about the Ottomans? Can a rebellion by one of the Sultan's own sons slow their advance? Will this joint rebellion by the leaders, the sons of the leaders of the Ottoman and Byzantine states, create a new friendship between them, change their relationship? There's a lot that's going to be happening, and so you should check in next time. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. And as always, respect. Or in English, good luck.